Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in leadership, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, Today, we're going to have kind of a two-part conversation. First, with my daughter, Erin. Welcome back again, Erin, who's going to join me to discuss a... Uh, award-winning book um, called The Poison City by Anna Clark. Uh, Both Aaron and I have read this book and I'm going to just talk a little bit about it. And um, for those of you who don't know that it is, the book is about the Flint water crisis. Um, The book is entitled The Poison City, Flint's Water and the American Urban uh, Tragedy. Um, and and so Anna Clark is a journalist in the Detroit area. Did a significant amount of research on kind of the backstory and what was happening both politically and in government with this um, with this uh, crisis. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that, uh, the politics and history of the water crisis. And then um, the second part of the hour. We're going to talk with the CEO of the National Center for African American Health Consciousness, um, E. Yvonne Lewis, uh, who is a resident, lifelong resident of Flint, and has been at the front of the the community advocacy and leadership of of helping the community understand the seriousness of this crisis. And so she will join us um, at about the top of the hour uh, to talk about things. And so to our faithful listeners, welcome back, and thank you for being a part of the family of our thousands of listeners every month. And to new listeners, we're glad you joined us. Um, So uh, as I said, we're going to talk about the Poison City, really to discuss a little bit about the history. And and I, I'm really struck just even in the first kind of introduction to this uh, in the book, um, Anna Clark highlights that this was something that happened and it wasn't a secret in terms of, you know, a lot of times we think about water contamination, we think about what's hidden inside the water. You know, we've, we've seen reports where, uh, in in metropolitan areas around the country where there are uh, bits of uh, prescription drugs in in the water system, there in other places there are heavy metals, and in other places there are pesticides. And so we hear about it, but we we assume it's like the that that hidden component of water. And so over the last thirty years or so, we've taken to drinking more bottled water, filtered water, taking more care in most places. Um, but the, the water we generally think about as contaminated is, is kind of the hidden contamination. You can't smell it, can't see it. Um, but what happened in Flint that was so different was that they described the water as it just felt strange. It, it, it felt strange to everyone who who drank it, showered with it, the kids played in it. And so there's a, a recount in the book right up front where this pastor, uh, Sherman McCatherine, uh, was a preacher in, in Flint, Michigan, uh, is quoted as saying, the water was coming out dark as coffee. Like I can't imagine. The water was coming out dark as coffee for hours. And he was shocked by it, but said, hey, something's wrong here. And I just think that 
when you start at that level, when you start there with what was wrong, something was seriously wrong for the water to be uh, that dark um, and still making its way through the system um, in the in the in the water system and all the way to the spigots and the taps in people's homes. Um, but then on the other side of it, there they came to know that that um, as people gave notice to the public officials, the health officials, the water system officials, that it turned out that the water was full of lead and other heavy metals and other toxins. Um, and, and they complained. And for the longest, nothing happened. And I guess that's where I want to start, because uh, for me, it is and having worked in the field before, it's just shocking to know that that level of contamination even happened in the first, in the first place. And, and, and we're not talking about that long ago. So um, Aaron, I know this is something in terms of environmental justice, something you have a strong interest in. So what did you think when you were reading about just at the level that this was happening openly? What, what, how did that strike you? Surprised that throughout the whole process of switching from the Detroit water, um, that there were blips all along the way, people complaining the whole time, um, showing their representatives this is not safe, and them still claiming that it was when it was visibly, you know, uh, really contaminated. Um, and then one part of the book that struck me was that the treatment program for the Flint's new water um, system did not include corrosion control, uh, which was a federal law uh, that they should have. That's what was making the water tainted that brownish color all those mm-hmm. minerals and sediments and so they didn't in the corrosion from the pipes getting those metals getting into the water and discoloring them so it's like something so basic that you would think um was not included in their plan sure i think they sure. didn't have they didn't have a solid plan i think they just wanted to to have their own control of water and we're looking at the money side was not really looking at the the human side the the impacts that it would have on the people in their city mhm mhm and i know um initially that um as i've talked to people about this a lot of people have asked the question so how did it how did it get contaminated in the first place and uh, without going into a lot of detail of the kind of the science behind it, but uh, most of, of your, the listeners will know that um, Flint and areas in Michigan um, had significant uh, chemical plants and auto manufacturing and all of which uh, contributed to um, the, the pollution in a number of, of American cities, but um, the rivers. And in all fairness, very early on, um, it was it was a common practice that out of sight, out of mind, and we didn't have a lot of information about environmental impact of burying things. So it was a common practice that if you could bury it, um, it was gone, and you didn't have to worry about it again. And so what we we what we learned was that it was there were all kinds of of things that um, contaminations that there were uh, contaminations like um, uh, radioactive materials, uh, heavy metals that were all a part of this um, this idea that all you had to do was bury it or or dilute it. You could put it in in the in the ocean or in these rivers and it would be gone. And so there were industries that utilized these these chemicals and basically just dumped them dumped them in rivers and so aside from that we you know we learned later that um those hidden 
contaminants were there. And, and we even going uh, a little farther, we, we understood that after some time that some of the places that were most contaminated um, and, and not disclosed were places where um, uh, people of color were assigned to live and, and were able to afford the housing. And it was not until well into, I, I'm going to say the 1970s, where states and cities started to require that even homes that were contaminated by lead paint and otherwise had to even be disclosed. So there's just a whole pattern of, you know, kind of out of sight, out of mind uh, attitude uh, among uh, environmental um, in, environmental protection um, there, or the lack thereof that occurred. And so um, it's, it's, it's really unfortunate, but that, that there were a lot of people who migrated from the South that were African-Americans, moved to Flint and other cities, and they moved right to some of these places where the contamination took place. And so um, uh, just one, one last thing about the background on this is that um, so it, it got in the drinking water. Um, they mentioned that uh, the drinking water was full of, of lead and the lead um, was there. And as, as I know many of you are aware of, is that no amount of lead is safe. And, and so it can't be cured. Um, basically, there's treatment for lead poisoning and lead contamination in the blood, but um, it, is, it, it causes um, nerve damage, brain toxicity, and on and on. And all of this was a part of what was there. And so, I, I, you know, it's interesting, uh, and I, I, I think that um, part of the, the real issue here is who it impacted um, ultimately, who was in who was a part of the the city right i mean don't you agree that it was it was there were people there it was mostly people of color in this area and it just it was okay um but why do you think that exists that it was the the spaces that were people of color that were largely impacted by this that on the front end and on the, the, the side of the contamination that made a, made a big difference. So she mentioned that Flint had lost about half of its population due to the increasing water uh, and then the increasing water prices. So I think it's a combination of people leaving the city and then you, if you look at, how GM was basically redlining when they first um, came into Flint. It says they constructed nearly 3,000 homes, but the lower tier people were the black people who would be pushed into these certain neighborhoods. And then, so I think when you have segregation in the city like that, it's easy to it's easy to just uh, poison them because it's like they don't have advocacy they're not they don't have the economic status to uh really have influence in politics if we're being mm-hmm. honest it's always mm-hmm. politics mm-hmm. money and so when when there's just it's just a group of people who were systematically placed in an area and then they didn't care for like if the if the population isn't rich they're like it kind of goes back to your hidden problems as well like the pipes are underground nobody's really looking at them it costs billions of dollars to fix them and then just the public lines, and then it says residents are also responsible for their private um, water lines as well. So it's like if you don't have the money, how are you going to fix – you're worried about paying for groceries or mm-hmm. 
you know, like how you you're not worried about the invisible pipes under your your mm-hmm. house. You're thinking, mm-hmm. oh, that's the government's job; they should take care of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think it's uh, redlining was the biggest thing. The the start of it, maybe. Um, and and so I think that I mean unrelated directly to our discussion about the the actual water crisis is that it goes to show how connected a lot of these practices and how wrong they are starting with redlining or or assigning um, groups of people based on race social economics you can live here but not live live there you know in fact all over the world places that i've visited uh, it's just like that. The less desirable places are the places that say flood and that are historically known to be uh, contaminated or any number of other things. And I think your point about the lack of advocacy uh, is right on on the money. And that's the reason I'm, I'm really um, looking forward to having um, our guests um, join us, Ms. Lewis, uh, to talk about what they're they're currently doing. But um, the citizens actually complained. And so now we have a kind of a spiral happening. So citizens complained, nothing happened, people lost faith in the city, they left. Um, you know, it was like a, a perfect storm of events. The, the auto industry also was not doing well, so there weren't as many jobs, uh, there was crime. So people, people started leaving. Now the spiral is getting faster, out of control. And, it, and I, I think um, actually Ms. Clark uh, made the point that it was, it was the perfect recipe to kill a city. Um, all of the things that started happening. And um, I, I think about how you know, there are all kinds of revelations that happened um, through throughout the history of what was what was going on with the the water crisis, um, but over time that this was this was not something that was new. It had happened with chemical plants outside of Chicago, and as I mentioned earlier, you know we had a an entire section of the uh, Environmental Protection Agency that was responsible for. Uh, chemical contamination insights. Uh, some of you may remember called Superfund sites, um, and and so um, it, it's it's interesting that um, that it was still these were things that were still going on long after we knew that it was a problem. Right, and I think maybe the first major hint was in 2014 when General Motors switch they they were like we can't even use this water they tried to do the reverse osmosis they tried to dilute mm-hmm. it but they mm-hmm. were like we can't use the water and then people were like well if you can't use it to make cars or you know machinery how do you, how do you expect us to drink it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that was seven years ago and we're still where we are today yeah, yeah, and and so what? So let's talk a little bit about the politicians, though. What I mean, so it was in their interest to cover this up. Why? Um, I think they. You kind of don't want to admit that you made a huge mistake. I think the pride kind of came in the way. Um. You don't want to say you made the wrong choice. And it was a lot of people supporting it. And so. From the very, from who, the state level, from even the state level. Right. Yeah. So who, who knows why they really kept it going for years and years. It's like, what water were they drinking then? Right. You know, what, what were they bathing in? Sure. Sure. Or did they live in the parts of, you know, uh, one part of the book was like 
um, just a few feet over is another town, but they get it from another system, so their water's completely fine. Mm-hmm. It's like, are they living in those sections? And so they don't really see the the cost of what their decision is, you know? Like, where are yep. they in the city? That's what I want to know. Right, right. Well, it's a perfect segue because um, – um, Ms. Lewis is now on the line. I'm going to patch her in in just a second. Um, and so um, just want to welcome uh, Ms. Yvonne Lewis to the conversation. Um, and she is uh, the CEO, as I mentioned earlier, um, of a and, co- and director of the National Center uh, for um, African-American Health Consciousness. Uh, she is the co-director of the Flint of the Healthy Flint Research Coordinating Center, and has been involved in a number of partnerships between the community and Michigan State University and the state to try to get to the bottom of 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 this and resolve the crisis for the Flint community. So, um, Ms. Lewis, uh, Yvonne, welcome to the conversation. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, and so we're we're glad to have you, and and so um, Aaron and I have just been talking about um, one of the books of many that had been written. This is the one by Anna Clark um, about um, the the water crisis, and um, so we're just excited to hear from you from a community perspective. I know you've been there. Want to get a little uh, background on you. And and then talk about some of the questions we have. Um, so Aaron and I will just kind of bounce in and out because we we you know we read a lot about what happened and want to kind of separate um, kind of fact from fiction and what happened on the ground. And I just wanted to say the reason, as I mentioned to you when we spoke initially, the reason I wanted to invite you on um, is because. Um, I know people in the Flint community, and and from a national perspective, certainly East Coast and the South, I can speak uh, from those two perspectives, that it really felt like this crisis had faded. You know, it's always the news cycle, but it felt like it had faded from the national news attention when it's still, it's very much alive and very much um, problematic, especially when we start talking about lead and other heavy metal poisoning, because a lot of this doesn't show up um, for those who have been, may have been where we're talking about young children who have been exposed to high concentrations of lead and heavy metals that, there are severe long-term effects. Um, we can't even have, and haven't touched base, but we can talk about also the outbreak of Legionnaire's disease um, that happened. So, um, again, welcome. And I just wanted to bring some attention to some other justice questions that affect the African-American community in our country. So, um, so tell us a little bit um, why don't we start? Um, love to know just a little bit about the Center for Health Consciousness that you started. Yes, thank you. Good afternoon, Dr. Perkins. It's a pleasure to be here with you, and I appreciate this this invitation. Uh, the, the impetus for the National Center, I think, was brewing in my in my mind for many many years when I first had entree, as I say, to public health, I I knew absolutely nothing. And this goes way back to 1987 when I had an opportunity to work in a neighboring community where I was born and raised in Saginaw, Michigan, which is about 30 miles north of Flint, looking at African-American infant mortality Mm -hmm. during the crack cocaine epidemic and Mm -hmm. not understanding all the issues about uh, public health, the data, I started learning that there were these health differences and health outcomes, uh, the differences in health outcomes in, in African Americans, particularly as compared to European Americans. And so learned about Healthy People 2000, then got more involved in the work, learned about Healthy People 2010, and then in 2013, sitting in an office looking at kidney disease, 
and related illnesses that relate to high blood pressure, cancer, hypertension, the data didn't look any different. And so the question became for me after all of these years, what was the, the, the factor that seemed to me to be the real struggle? And it became the lack of awareness, conscious awareness, I would say, of African Americans as it relates to these, these health indicators. What really causes this, these poor health outcomes? And then, of course, the underlying issue of racism. So it, it just occurred to me, I'm African-American, I'm a female. If I can mm-hmm. address anything, let me talk about the conscious awareness of African-Americans around this health world and, and begin to suggest specific ways that we can address reducing the disparities through informed decision-making. And mm-hmm. so that, that's that's really how it got started. It, it's it's mm-hmm. been a long journey. It didn't happen overnight. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. No, and it's it's certainly something that uh, commend you for. Um, and and I, you know, you you mentioned that there were all kinds of other uh, health outcomes, maternal and child health outcomes that are concerning about the area. And and of course, you combine, you know, the the environmental factors with with health policy, you got a, you know, you got a hurricane, right? I mean, it's uh, a real, a real issue for, for any community. Um, I'm going to give Aaron a chance to ask you a question. I, but I, I did want to know, so, um, so when did you get involved with the, with the water crisis? Was it at the beginning when things happened? What did that look like for you when the, when, with the, uh, the public water uh, issue became something that was hitting national news. Um, at what point did you get involved? Well, actually, we've been involved in talking about the water situation even prior to the water switch. Gotcha. Um, our, our water conversations began with, you know, looking at who's responsible for the water, who controls the water, and and the and the and the fact that the water is a revenue generator for our community, mm-hmm. and so there was conversations about building a new pipeline, which again is not was not a new conversation because there have been conversations over the years about having uh, direct access to water for for Flint versus purchasing water from Detroit through through Lake uh, Lake Huron. Uh, so we mm-hmm. were in the process of having what was called the Caragondi Bike Pipeline. Um, built. We also had the Great Lakes Water Authority that was a co- part of the conversation. And so while, the, while this Caragondi pipeline was being built, there was a period of time in which it was supposed to be completed that it seemed that it was going to be a little bit longer than the intention. So that's when the conversation started. Well, let's, let's use Flint River as a water so as a, as a municipal water source. Understanding mm-hmm. that there had always been, in a, in a case of emergency, we had a water plant that always been, if there is an extreme emergency where we needed to have municipal water in it in a short term, that our water plant, treatment plant, would be prepared to do that, but not on a long-term basis. Uh, okay. We were in transition. We were in transition. There was some work that needed to be done to complete uh, improving the water treatment plant. So there are a lot of factors that went into this this conversation. Mm-hmm. So when the final decision was made to switch from the Flint, from the uh, Detroit water source to the Flint water, uh, immediately people began to say, you know, we didn't think that was a good idea as community members. So there's a long history of it. We had General Motors and other factories putting pollutants in the water and understanding that there needed to be a lot of control if that was going to be if the river was going to be the major water source, which, again, was not the idea. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, once the water was switched, uh, that, again, too, was a political decision because we only talked about saving a few hundred dollars. We were in an emergency manager situation, which, again, was an assault on democracy because the state of Michigan, as an entire state, the, there was a ballot initiative that, was re- requesting the appointment of the, the governor, giving governor privilege to appoint emergency managers. That mm-hmm. was not passed across the entire state of Michigan. So it wasn't just Flint. 
Nobody, no municipality in the state of Michigan wanted that to happen. Ah. But in an appropriations decision, in an appropriations bill, that emergency manager was put in that appropriations bill, and that's how it became law. So, again, an assault on the democracy of the state residents. So that when the emergency manager came in, decided they would switch the water immediately, uh, Dr. Perkins, we could tell the difference. Uh, you could smell the difference in the water coming out of your tap. You could see the discoloration of the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, the water was harder. And so, there, you know, it was almost like once you switch the switch, switch the, turn the switch, flip the switch, if you will, people immediately knew there were problems. The voices of community, we went to City Hall. We had people who, and you've seen these pictures, people holding bottles of water, jugs of right. water, saying something right. is wrong with this water, but we were not listened to. Mm. Uh, right. My example, you know, even in, in your home, when you would wash your clothes, you put them in the washer, and maybe you didn't get them out right away. You could immediately smell the, the, the clothing mildew quickly. So it, it, it was unusual, the thing that we were experiencing right away. Mm. Right. So going um, back into the health outcome um, or consequences, um, as somebody deeply involved in the community, do you think the effects of taking in that water contributed to higher COVID rates, perhaps, in your city? Well, you know, it's difficult, you know, from from a from a pure science perspective to make that leap. But I will tell you honestly, once the water crisis happened, <laughs> and and we call it the water crisis because we did see uh, poor health outcomes, people with rashes, losing their hair, having diseases that were uncommon. Mm-hmm. To your point earlier, to Legionella. Uh, it was just devastating. So it was almost as if everything that happened to you, the first question would be, is it a result of the water? So Mm -hmm. obviously when we are looking at the number of cases of COVID, you know, the question would come, is it a result of the water? We can't actually make that claim scientifically, but Mm -hmm. I will say to you that I am sure it is a thought in a person's mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, just about anything that happens to you if, you if you're, you know, we talk about children a lot But we do know that even for adults With high concentrations of lead, heavy metal right. It increases blood pressure, right? Right, so that's right That's a concern for older adults as well And we have that's seen right. people who had normal blood pressures During that period have elevated blood To see their blood pressure levels going up Yes. So just about any circumstance that a person experiences in the back of their mind and sometimes in the very forefront of your mind is, does this have anything to do with my exposure to the lead and other contaminants? And I want to make that really clear. It wasn't just lead. There are other contaminants and bacteria that showed Mm -hmm. up in our water. That's right. Even infectious disease doctors are questioning how. That if these things were not in our water pre the water switch. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's another thing that when I think about, uh, but let me just go back to something, Erin, you just said. Kind of the connection is an indirect one, you know. So I I you know know that you're not saying that oh there was COVID in the water, but see it's the right. indirect it's the indirect impact that this water crisis had on people's health, right? So yeah. if if they it's had... Right, right. But if they like had the increased... Yeah. Go, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was saying the <laughs> what I meant was the indirect negative health outcomes of consuming the water make you more... Do they make you more susceptible to COVID as yeah, you are no, maybe more compromised? Right. Well, that that's actually been well established that it, that there are, you know, kind of the uh, what you've heard in the news that there were other contributing health factors 
uh, and health conditions, pre-existing conditions that yes. that that made it happen. And what I'm hearing is that so you had bacterial infections possible as a result of the water uh, exposure. You had heavy metals, um, and who knows? Especially if you're talking about uh, that you 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 had in some cases they are. Uh, they they mentioned that there were films, you know, that there was a there was almost not like a sheen of oil um, uh, on in the water at times. And so um, I, I mentioned before you came on, Ms. Lewis, I, I, I mentioned that uh, there was one description of it that at times the water came out as dark as coffee uh, for yeah. in certain yeah, yeah in certain areas. Um, it's just really hard for, I know for me, to understand that with those kinds of examples, and I do remember occasionally seeing it on the national news where people would come with their bottles and, and gallon drugs of water, but that what were some of the things that the officials were saying when people showed up with, with the evidence? Because it's, like it's hard to argue, or at least one would think, with here's what I got out of my, you know, my, my kitchen sink this morning. Um, yeah. What would they say when people showed up at the city council meetings, at the water control board meetings? What, what were they saying? Well, it was, it was very dismissive in many cases, and I guess that's the best way to put it. Uh, you know, it's as if we decided we wanted to put some discoloration in the water to prove a point. <laughs> and oh, so wow. it, it, it's like you, you don't have the the academic experience. You're not a scientist, so how can you prove these things? In addition to the fact that when you think about, we have an aging infrastructure in in our country, right? But we mm-hmm. also have, you know, so we're serious about the aging infrastructure in in our community. So depending upon where you live in the community, how old the the pipes are, whether you have uh, lead service lines or galvanized pipes, whether or not you live in an area that is, you know, uh, no longer as many homes in there, because we have, you know, vacant properties. You know, I live in an area, uh, Dr. Perkins, that's not far from one of the General Motors plants, where it was, I'll say past tense, where it was, okay. because there's no there. But if you can imagine, you need water running through those pipes on a regular basis to keep it flushed, Right. Mm-hmm. If, and, and, mm-hmm. I, and I use this example. If you put water in a, in a in a in a in a open space and you don't do anything with it, that water becomes stagnant. It draws bacteria. You, you're surprised at what ends up growing out of stagnant water. It just imagine mm-hmm. the miles of pipes. If you have a a plant that built a car from start to finish, which is like three miles of land. Mm-hmm. that there's no water running through. And by the time it flushes through there, all kinds of things are in that water by the sure. time it gets to your house and sure. flush through your pipe. And, if, and, and, and we even had examples where they were flushing the hydrant, and the water was dark coming out of the water hydrant. Wow. So you, you, you do wonder, with this kind of evidence, why you're not taking taken seriously? Well, it is a reflection upon the leadership and the governmental process that did not want to accept or acknowledge the responsibility for making a poor decision. Mm-hmm. And rather than doing something immediately to change that, stood their ground for months to the to the to the extent that this happened in April, October. General Motors, one of the General Motors facilities, is saying this water is ruining and rusting our parts. Wow. So they allowed General Motors to use a separate water line before changing or switching back for community residents water coming into their home. Mm-hmm. So if an industry says it's a problem and they address the industry problem, what do you think is happening in the bodies of our community members? Me, mm-hmm. as an example. What do you, mm-hmm. I have to think about that. If it's rusting a pipe or a part, what is it doing to me internally? So Absolutely. One of the we do, uh, Dr. Perkins, as you, you mentioned earlier in the water crisis, because we wanted our community members to be able to have answers, we worked with the University of Michigan Flint to stand up the water crisis course. And that allowed the, the community members to have access to some of these leaders to express their concerns, to get information, 
and to really try to find out what are the remedies that are available for us in the community now that we're in this situation. Mm-hmm. Well, so well, I'm we glad. You, uh, well, of the water crisis course. Yeah, so I, I do want you to continue that. It made me think of um, an important question that came out of something you said earlier and now is that um, you wanted them to do something. What were their options at that point? So they had switched it um, because there were problems. Um, what could they have done to switch it back or what, like what, what were the options? Well, the, the, the easy option we would have thought was just like they switched, turn, flipped the switch to turn the water away off from the Detroit water source, just flip it back on. Mm-hmm. They could have done that in a reasonable amount of time and never had the length of exposure to the lead mm-hmm. contamination. Because here, here's the thing, Dr. Perkins. It wasn't an immediate, like as soon as they turned the switch, the lead contamination, but what we began to see because of the corrosion controls not being in place, that the harsh water and the contaminants in the water began to corrode the internal protection of the pipes, which caused mm-hmm. that, 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 that caused the lead to leach into the to water. To leach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you think there's a, there's a coating around the pipes, to keep the lead, I'll say, to keep the lead at bay. I'm not a scientist, so I don't have mm-hmm. always the best use of the scientific terms. But if you can just imagine that there's a, there's a protective barrier around the pipes while the water is running through that keeps the lead from leaching in. Well, because there was not the appropriate corrosion controls, it began to eat away at that protective layer, which mm-hmm. then allowed the lead to seep into the the water. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Before mm-hmm. that happened, when the water smelled funny, when the water looked funny, if they had to listen to the community members, they could have turned that switch back off. But then mm-hmm. you've got to deal with, we have a contract with Detroit that we now no longer have because you know, we decided we're going to go to a different water source. Mm-hmm. But eventually, the decision was made after the discovery of elevated lead levels in children, which then led to understanding that there are potentially adults that had lead levels, high lead levels, and then all of these other diseases as a result of the water. Then we get the water switch back. But by that time, mm-hmm. think about the, the, the damage that's been done, the trauma that's been done, the, 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 the lack of, of humanity that has been seen by those persons who were put in place to help protect us through law, that that mm-hmm. law was misutilized and did not protect us at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So where are, where are we now? With, where is the EPA now? Where is the federal government now with addressing this? Well, most recently, as many people have heard, there was, some charges that were brought against some of the, 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 the officials in the state. And, you know, obviously there's no glory of seeing anybody put in jail or, mm-hmm. or indicted. But at the same time, people lost their lives. And we have people who are serving multiple year sentences for having possession of, and I'll just use this, of a substance. Not having done anything with it, just have possession of a substance. And we have evidence of individuals who made decisions that were harmful enough to cost people their lives and their health, and they only get a slap on the hand. That's, that's clearly not justice. Uh, so I think that's, that's the thing. Then there's the lawsuit settlement, multiple years of questioning, is there even the political will mm, to provide mm-hmm. some kind of remedy mm-hmm. for persons who have have experienced loss or who, for those of us who are still not clear about what's going to happen, yeah, there's a $641 million lawsuit, but much of that goes to the attorneys. And then when you look at what the settlement allows for, it does allow for children to have some remedies, particularly those who have identified and have uh, documentation of certain health outcomes, poor health outcomes, but it does not at all 
provide remedies for those who may not know for years to come what the health implications are of that exposure. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, and, and so let me ask you this. So what, what do you, you know, what was the, the, the reason? Was it purely a financial decision? So I know you mentioned the, the former emergency manager because, you know, I know that's one of the people that was indicted. Am I not? That's correct, right? The the person yes, that yes, was the yes. the emergency manager was indicted, um, and and I think at this point there's probably been close to a dozen people um, who have been criminally indicted for the the as a result of the probe. But what was the reason? Why did they? Why did they decide that it was okay to do it? And okay, they so eventually they said they couldn't undo it and didn't undo it. But what was the real reason they presented in the first place? They were going to save money. The idea of the emergency manager was to improve the um, the financial status of the community of mm-hmm. the city, mm-hmm. and so saving maybe a hundred dollars a month by switching to the Flint River for a number of months before the Karagandi pipeline was finished was, and I guess in their mind, worth sacrificing the safety mm-hmm. of, of our community because that was yeah. the result of it. Right. It was and, not the saving of a whole lot of money. Mm-hmm. And what was so telling to me is how high this went. Um, you know, I, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that that don't know that this went as high as the governor's office. So that the the former governor of Michigan was also indicted on this. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, so this this went to the very top where people had information and did nothing about it. I, I mean, that's just tragic. Where you talk about willful neglect of duty that they they did not. Uh, once presented with information that should have resulted in 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 action, and I mean, people who could have done something about it. The person in charge of hu- uh, health and human services, the former exactly. director of health and human services for the state, exactly. was con- was was indicted for involuntary manslaughter. You're like this is this, and and that's the part that the reason I wanted you to come on because it it is. It is that serious where you have people making decisions. And so the justice side to me of this is that we, you know, rightfully pay a lot of attention to, uh, to the, the, the episodes and things that are happening immediately uh, to people on, on American streets as we should. And there are also other things that are happening to uh, people in black and brown communities that might be slower in the the execution, but it's I mean people know that these things are happening that will result in death and and result in in severe health outcomes and it's just it is unconscionable that people would allow these kinds of things to happen right the thing about it is you're so right, our governor. Is an, elect, is an elected position, right? Governors are elected by the will of the people. Mm-hmm. If, if our democracy and our vote continues to remain uh, the voice that we have. And so you elect the governor. Then you elect officials, senators, and representatives to go to the state to represent you. And when, these, when the elected officials then um, make decisions that do not reflect the will of the people, it, the question becomes then, how do the people then express themselves? And that's why you see people marching in streets and holding signs and having rallies, because those who have been elected to represent them are not representing them in a way that their voices can truly be heard. So obviously there needs to be some more attention given to who we put in these offices. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, the elected officials have the ability to appoint persons. So when you mention the director of the Department of Health and Human Services, the medical director, who all report to the governor, and then the emergency manager in and of itself, if we go back to that, the emergency manager law was defeated in this state. But 
through an appropriations, which many of us don't understand that political process. Through an appropriations bill, it was then accepted. And, and I know this is a repeat, but it's important to know that it's those elected officials that we put in those offices that make that final decision. So we do need to give attention to the midterm elections that generate the population of individuals or the, that, that, that's supposed to represent our voices in those legislative positions. Mm-hmm. Somehow, mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. are challenged about how to hold them accountable to truly speak on behalf of the people and not just for special interest groups. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So talking about accountability, realistically, what does justice look like after everything that has happened? And that's, that's a very good question uh, because, um, you know, for a homeowner that may not you know, actually have physical signs of the, the exposure, you never, you, you're even wondering it, what happens if your water heater goes out. Was that a result of water crisis? You know? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Every, everything, I mean, for the, the trauma that it brings, too, that what else will happen? That, that our voices won't be heard. And so justice will take on many forms, and I, I think it's, it's an ongoing conversation, and I do appreciate this opportunity today because you're right, because it's not in the popular media anymore. It's not, and we, we, as much as we appreciate Rachel Maddow, she can't cover our story every night. Right, uh, right. But, uh, but it is necessary that the conversation continues because Flint is only an example of what happens in other communities that That's don't right. even get the, the platform that we've received. That's right. So as a community, we too feel a responsibility to continue to be, to have those water warriors go out because the water issue isn't over yet. Uh, to have those who will stand up and talk about voting rights and, and the, 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 the social injustices that are inevitably necessary to talk about, even though we want to sweep them under the rug some days, it will not change if we don't have the space to have these voices heard from people who are living the experiences every day. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and so, you know, back to the question of, you know, what's happening now, um, Where where are things with the uh, the the case, um, what what what's going on there, and what does it look like will happen, um, you know, somewhat long term for those that have been adversely affected um, by this. Well, well, there's several levels to that too. There have been individual cases, and then there are class action cases, and there's also mass action cases, which there is a lot for a person to try to understand. <laughs> Yeah. But for those individuals who had, I would call, very apparent uh, situations where they had a family member die from Legionella or they have been um, going to doctors and have validated circumstances medically resulting from the water crisis, some of those lawsuits have been settled. In addition to that, there's been a lawsuit that has, was, was settled that provided an opportunity for pipe replacement and uh, then restoration of the property once they dug up to find out whether you had galvanized pipes or lead pipes. And if you had mm-hmm. lead pipes, those same lines would have been replaced. If you had galvanized pipes, of course, they dig your yard up, and then there was money set aside to, to uh, repair that, that damage. So those things are in place. With the lawsuit, the larger lawsuit uh, that, that was settled, the residents had a short window of time to either sign up as an individual wanting a particular special lawyer for themselves or they could join the, bath, the class action lawsuit. And so those things are still in place. The process is still continuing. So even the lawsuit settlement is not quite complete yet. That will take a while. I just received mm-hmm. myself. I submitted as a resident. Received notification the other day. We need more information. So mm-hmm. you know, go through the process. So it is no clear indication of an end date. 
Um, so all I can say right now is the process continues. Sure. And and for many people, there won't be an end date, um, you know, hoping that you and your families will be safe in the long term. But we we just don't know with, you know, because, you know, it's hard to know what your what the exposure was for you and so many other people around the city. And they often those impacts only manifest themselves later. Uh, it can have um have some long term and then not to mention you 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 hit it just briefly about um the what it did to property values uh in mm-hmm. the area what it did to um you know people willing to make investments in the city uh, and those have very long term implications and and just to think that it went so far I know I did hear, I don't know which person it was, but I guess there was someone that had already been sentenced. I don't know if it was a, a plea deal or what have you, but I know that there, I had read that or saw in the news that someone had been sentenced. But um, um, I think, you know, the accountability has to be just like we have it in other uh, areas that we need, we need to take this seriously our communities also need the kind of advocacy that you're providing and others. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen, um, and it's difficult. I just, again, I marvel not uh, in wonder but in disgust that these folks showed up and talked about what impact it had um, on on the water supply to their their kitchens and to their bathrooms, and nothing happened. Uh, it's it's yeah. uh, it's disgraceful, um, and and so the reason also I was asking you about so what were some of the options? Uh, you can't help but wonder what would have happened if the population had looked different than it does. You know who was being impacted by this? Who was showing up? Um, and I just yeah. don't want us to lose sight of that uh, that part of the 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 justice question about what will happen going forward um, because we are talking about um, black and brown people and that this is typically not strongly on a radar um, for us because uh, of its long-term, you know, kind of its long-term prospect, but that we just don't have many advocates um, um, focused in this area. So, uh, I really, I really think it's something that deserved the kind of attention uh, that you that you uh, are putting to it. Um, and so, um, Aaron, did you have anything else you were trying to ask? Uh, no, I did not. Okay. Um, so again, um, Miss Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been quite informative, and I just have to reiterate, I want people to know that this is, this is a, a real major um, crisis in, in our country that we need to uh, pay attention to. And I just appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule and your lunch uh, to, to be with us. Um, I am, am also uh, proud to announce, so this was our 99th episode uh, and broadcast of Perkins platform. And so next week we're going to be celebrating a hundred episodes uh, since 2012. This podcast has been going and we've had a number of very important um, community members like Ms. Lewis and, and researchers. And so next week we we're going to have a special hour long broadcast and we're having with us the former Mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrew. I just saw him last night on CNN uh, talking about the uh, the verdict of the um, um, the court case recently in the murder of George Floyd. But uh, Mitch Landrew will be here on Perkins Platform next Wednesday at 6 p.m. So Wednesday, April 28th at 6 p.m. Uh, he wrote a book in the shadow of statues: A White Southerner Confronts History. So he's going to talk about his personal journey confronting racism and how difficult uh, it it had been in his role as as mayor of the city of New Orleans.
trying to tackle some of these very kinds of problems, the structural inequalities and inequities that exist. So uh, that, please be sure and join us next week on Wednesday, uh, April the uh, 28th at 6 p.m. Um, and so again, uh, Ms. Lewis, thank you so much for being with us and, and we're wishing you the best. We'll, we'll keep our eye on what's going on in, in Flint and, and I hope that uh, justice is, is served there and that all of you uh, remain safe and healthy. Uh, so Aaron, again, thank, thank you. And, yeah, and Aaron, thank you for joining us and uh, contributing to a successful broadcast today. Uh, And so until next time, to all of you listening, go well, stay well. Thank you, Dr. Parker. Thank you both. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.